Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Farmerama. January, for us and many others across the UK regenerative farming community, means ORFC, the Oxford Real Farming Conference. Now in its 10th year, and this year double the size. We were there in force, as always. There were more speakers than ever, and the Lamb Workers Alliance Cayley was a definite highlight. We got to hear about Zambian no-cost agriculture, the ins and outs of biofertilizers, and finally, the journey to a more regenerative approach. One of the speakers on the main stage at ORFC was Barbara Hachipuka Banda, founder of the Natural Agriculture Development Programme, Zambia. Barbara's working with thousands of other women in Zambia to teach and promote natural agriculture, or as she calls it, no-cost agriculture. The project is supported by Shumei International, an NGO based in Japan. You might remember hearing from them way back in episode two. The program has been a great success, as Barbara explained to a rapt ORFC audience. The reason I'm here today to actually speak to you is because uh, I'm going back to the basics of what farming and agriculture is. I actually grew up on a farm uh, with my father because my father is a farmer. So every weekend was spent either riding tractors or my father uh, making us run around after the cattle to make sure they go into the cattle crawl or something funny like that. Um, living on a farm with no electricity, water pump, you know, just the, the basics, sitting around firewood. And then my father went into politics and became a member of parliament. My mother would always be there by his side, being part of this community. And she was one of the people who I identified the lack of participation that women had in terms of the development of their household. Because in an African context, the man owns the land, the women and the children work the land. So, you know, she wanted them to, to have more, to, to have a decision at the table. At this point in time, I'm, you know, studying to be a journalist, I've graduated, and I'm working with the UN and doing other things, and my mom would be like, oh, come on, you've got to help me out, and I'm like, oh, I'm too busy. You know, party life, life is good in the city. Who wants to be part of the rural area? And then um, my mother passed away in a car accident uh, two months after being able to register this women's group. And um, all these women attended her funeral. It was such a big thing. And then, you know, we had to take the funeral to this rural community because my mother was ever beloved by these women. And all these women kept saying, oh, you've got to help us out. You've got to, you know, you're, you're, you're your mother's daughter. So you've got to be part and parcel of trying to change a community of women. Come on, do something about it. At first I was like, so not happening. So don't want to go back to farming or the rural area. A year later, I mean Shumei International. And I'm like, oh, Lord, this is like that voice that keeps ringing in the back of my head, leading me back to, you know, these women and my mother's dream. By that time, I had attended so many conferences and, you know, been part of so many speeches. And in the process, when I met Shume, it was like a light in my head saying, you're so in the wrong place. I need you back in gumboots and in the farm. The reason I'm here is I'm taking you real farmers back to the basics. Because at the end of the day, before the complications have happened, before all the analysis, the data collection, farming is supposed to be a passion. 
It's supposed to be the number one thing people do, not just for poverty reduction, not just for marketing and sales, but at the end of the day, it's a livelihood that changes the world. Basically, while working with the United Nations on the Millennium Development Goals, which now everybody knows as the Sustainable Development Goals, I encountered Shume International in Japan, who actually focused on natural agriculture a sustainable form of agriculture that doesn't use fertilizer, that doesn't use inputs, that doesn't use hybrid seeds, and focuses on seed saving as the prime part of the agriculture project. I said to Shume, I've been working with a couple of small-scale women farmers in Zambia, and I would like to know about your agriculture method. My focus for actually starting this project would be, number one, to reduce poverty in my country. Number two, to bring about gender equality. I want to focus on natural agriculture being a, a positive influence on these women farmers. So in 2004, Shume International actually were brave enough to venture out into Africa. They came out to Zambia and they met a couple of the women farmers I was talking about. So we started with 20 small-scale women farmers. And we decided let's start by putting up demonstration farms that show that the practice of natural agriculture actually works. So we started by giving, looking for indigenous seeds specifically. A lot of farmers would be like, you know what, I grew up on indigenous seed. There is actually indigenous seeds that actually exist, that aren't patented, that aren't owned. And a lot of these farmers were inheriting these seeds coming down generation from generation from their grandparents. So as part of our work with Shume International, we went out into the rural communities and we started looking for the indigenous seed. And we found eight different types of indigenous seed specifically maize, which is our staple food. When we accumulated these seeds, eight demonstration farms were set up. The farmers were trained in natural agriculture. Shume came down to, to Zambia and educated about eight farmers on how to do natural agriculture. We call natural agriculture as no-cost agriculture. When you look at the cost of, uh, for a small-scale farmer of buying hybrid seed, of buying fertilizers, of buying pesticides, and with the changing uh, weather patterns and climate, you find that in one year, what you're assuming the rain pattern will be like changes entirely in a short period of a month. Rain begins in the stipulated time period of November, and by the time we get to somewhere like December, the rain is gone. So all the investment that you made by planting your hybrid seed, by spraying your pesticides, by utilizing your fertilizers, has actually disappeared. The crop itself has died and has no guarantee of growth. But in terms of the sustainable agriculture and natural agriculture, the indigenous seed itself was adaptable to the changing climate. And our root systems became deeper and more resilient. We included early planting, uh, early planting training because we wanted farmers to know that it's not like the olden days where you knew the exact weather pattern, the climate is changing. So if you plant early, you mulch the fields. For us, mulching would cover the fields with dry leaves, dry grass, make sure the surfaces are covered so that the moisture is absorbed within the soil. And in this process, with a lot of farmers practicing, we found that farmers were able to actually harvest. And when we put two fields together, your hybrid seed fields and your natural agriculture fields, in a bad weather year, we found that the natural agriculture fields were more successful. We found ourselves having a good crop of actual natural agriculture maize seed. So a project that started out with 20 small-scale farmers just growing basic maize, then grew into 100 farmers, then grew into 500 farmers, then before we knew it, we had a, a 1,200 farmers and a lot of indigenous seed that we had accumulated.
a lot more farming communities started to approach our demonstration farms. They wanted to know more about how they could do the practice within their own rural communities. So in 2006, we decided to host our first natural agriculture show. And this was a group of women, basically 500 women farmers who came together, showed their different indigenous seeds that they had collected from various communities and also from the, from the farming practices that they had used. And in the process, it was also a celebration of the culture. So a lot of farmers from various parts of the community started to attend. We also got the support of local leaders, the chiefs, and other parts of the community to be part and parcel of the event. And we found that a three-day event that was supposed to be for a 1,000 farmers ended up bringing 10,000 farmers from all over the southern part of Zambia. So what was supposed to be a small project with 20 farmers growing ended up in a period of four years growing into 5,000 small-scale farmers in three different parts of Zambia. And this was all because of the determination of the small-scale farmers themselves. Seeing that drive, it's seeing that passion that makes it worthwhile. Mother Africa, Mother Africa, her rivers flowing, Stimela, Stimela. Mother Africa, Mother Africa, her rivers flowing, Stimela, Stimela. So that one's just for you. We've heard from a number of different people about the biofertilizer courses at Ragman's Farm, a 60-acre farm in the Forest of Dean, owned and run by Matt Dunwell. We know there's some skepticism about the effectiveness of biofertilizers in the scientific community, but many farmers seem very excited about it. So we got the lowdown from Matt and biofertilizer expert Juan Fran Lopez. We use um, biofertilizer at Ragman's. No, it'd be terrible if we didn't. <laughs> uh, we have about a thousand apple trees, so we make uh, preparations, we make a a native micro-brew, we make a super-magro, they're all different uh, tools in the kit that we've, we've learnt through, through one friend's work uh, and we use them as foliar sprays on, on the orchard. What is a biofertilizer? Uh, it's an organic fermented liquid that makes an impact in the immunological system of the plant. So what we're trying to do is to increase the quality and the health of the plant. Where we are hoping to improve the quality of our crop. We run an orchard that is managed probiotically. So most growers will uh, attack pests and disease antibiotically. And I think one of the key things of using um, biofertilizers is that you're, you're using um, probiotic approach to build system health. And then that makes the plants withstand any disease that comes their way. Uh, we had an agronomist through the orchard about five or six years ago uh, and he was saying there's something really interesting going on here because you have disease in the orchard but it's held in stasis. It's like a healthy body that's got some disease but is healthy. But he said you know any other monoculture orchard like this 
with a disease in it that you've got, would, it, the disease would run rampant through it. And so that's when you have to start intervening with pesticides and herbicides and goodness knows what. So he's saying you've got an interesting orchard because there is disease in the orchard, but it's held in, in a balance. So it's held in stasis. Maybe you could um, give us an example of one biofertilizer and how you'd make it and why you would use it. I take a one liter bottle. <laughs> I put a bit of ashes from my stove, a bit of milk after breakfast, a bit of sugar <laughs> after breakfast, and I put a culture of microbes. can be from a cow dung or from native microbes. I close with the airtight uh, with a airlock and lead to ferment. So you can do in a half liter bottle or in a 50,000 liter container. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Yes, the less important in a biofertilizer are the microbes. The more important is of the molecules, the elements, the hormones, the proteins, the vitamins. So all the microbiology that you have in the biofertilizer is in a dormant state. So when you apply that, if that microbiology find the right uh, environment, so we'll wake up again. If no, no. So the main of the biofertilizer is what we apply food. The microbes are already in the soil. So if you put food, the microbes will come. This morning you gave a party and a beer analogy. Ah, okay, yes. It's the same that you are going to uh, make a party tonight. So, and then you don't buy beer, so you don't buy drink, and you invite many people in there. What is going to happen in there? That the party is not going to be fun, and everyone will go. <laughs> if you buy many, many, many beers, for sure, all your friends, even more, will come to the party. It's the same principle in the soil. If you put food, the microbes will come because they are there. If you put microbes but you don't put food, it doesn't make sense. Um, so one example is uh, an apple grower in Herefordshire uh, called James Aitchison and he came on a course at Ragman's and um, he, he has I think 10,000 apple trees grows cider um, and the main thing that he did was was to start looking at the inputs he, he was a conventional grower and he started looking at the agronomical I inputs that he was using uh, and one by one he was replacing those with the preparations that he'd learnt on the course. And so financially speaking, uh, he's now saving in the region of, uh, I think, about seven or eight thousand pounds a year in terms of input costs. So, so, and that's been a real revelation for him. But also, he, what he says now, which is nice, is that um, he really enjoys spraying his orchard. Whereas before he had to have, you know, ventilation mask and all that sort of stuff. Now he's making crazy brews. Uh, and he's using materials such as wood ash and, and lots of whey, molasses, what have you, and, and native microbes. But he really enjoys going around his trees because what he's doing is he's being probiotic rather than antibiotic. I've got a crazy visualization which I've just come into my head. <laughs> so you have to, you have to visualize a tree, okay? And then when everybody thinks of a tree, they just think of the trunk and the and the branches. But you think of the roots. And, and then basically what's happening in nature, which is something that's been really neglected, is the idea that sunshine is falling on the leaf, the leaf is making sugar, and the sugar is being pumped down through the tree and out through the roots. So there's this flow of sunshine that is actually in the form of sugar and energy going into the soil. So now if you turn that whole picture in your mind upside down, so you've got a tree 
that's the, that's made out of the roots that are sticking up in the, into the ground, and the leaves are sticking down into the soil with the sunshine underground. Okay, so now the sunshine is coming up into the roots of the tree, into the dark soil, and the roots of the tree are actually glowing with sunshine, and they're pushing out sugar into the this world, this dark world. Okay, and when you're spraying your micronutrients onto the leaves of the tree, which are actually underground. Those micronutrients are flowing up into this dark world, and when the tree is, 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 is feasted on molybdenum or selenium or whatever, it starts to push this out into the, into the atmosphere of the soil. And with the sunshine and the glucose, that is the process of agriculture that we should have in our heads, that we're feeding the soil through this foliar application of trace elements. Do you have anything to communicate to the wider farming community? Open mind and happiness. It's about trusting uh, your own ability as a grower. This is, the, this is the journey that I've made. You have to trust your own ability as a grower to come away from what is perceived as conventional wisdom and really explore those areas where you think uh, they're a bit nutty. But actually, there's a lot of really good work going on on the margins with a lot of science to back it up. So uh, I guess the point is, if you can understand the science and the theory behind it, which is what we're about, is actually trying to get farmers to get their hands back into the, 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 the knowledge game so that they can make their own decisions. Uh, then if you can understand that, then you can start with the basics of what one friend's teaching to tweak it to your own system. Farmarama is proud to be supported by Rebel Kitchen. Their health message doesn't separate the individual from the whole and is demonstrated through actions, not just words. As they point out, it's all connected and we couldn't agree more. Price was part of a panel at the RFC, hosted by the team behind the Sector Mentor for Soils app. The focus of the panel was on becoming a soil health expert on your own farm. Fred has been farming at Gothelney Farm in Somerset for the last 10 years, and from the start he's been on a quest to be the best farmer he can be. Initially, that meant maximising his yields and being as productive as possible. Within a few years he'd achieved those goals, but then he started to realise it didn't all add up. The questions he began to ask have led him on a regenerative journey, a process of unlearning the chemical farming mindset and instead using the soil as his guide to build the health of his farm, both ecologically and financially. When I took it on, it was an arable farm. It was about 250 acres, and I think I had a real like complex about how small that felt at the time. And I was chasing yield, and I was like, well, I'll show them, you know, I'll get 10, 12 tonne a hectare of wheat. Generally, I remember saying to my dad at the time, who's not from a farming background, but I was like, I'm going to turn my 250 acres into 350 acres by basically being more productive and being better. That meant chasing yield at all costs, although I didn't know the costs at the time, and they were both financial and also detrimental to what I am subsequently learning about the soil and everything. At the time, there was this like discourse about a yield plateau in that productive dream because incremental improvements are always being made in, in the genetic improvement of modern cultivars. 
but that wasn't being reflected in reality on the field. You know, the yields have stagnated since the late 90s. And so I was like, well, I think this is because, and my answer was soil. In the early years, 10 years ago, this seems such small things now, but I threw compost into the system as a kind of like Kickstarter to try and give the biology some food. And uh, I sorted out the rotation. So like really basic things. And I also got a handle on my soils by testing and measuring. I was really empirical at the time. And also in through time, so not just taking a soil test at one point in time, at, in one space, I was interested in how the plants behaved through the season. So I was taking tissue tests and things like that. And that led me on this like two or three year journey to massively increasing my yields. I was in this big like, one of those moments where you're really thinking about where you're going, who you are, like, because I achieved high yields, I did what I set out to do. I had the productivity. I was growing half the wheat that my aunt was. I was getting the same, if not more, in the barn, you know. But my bottom line was bad. I had overdrafts, I had high purchase agreements. Luckily, as so many things happened down to luck, luckily, one year, one of my crops, which happened to be spring barley, just behaved in an unusual way and it all went flat. I thought I was good at growing like a modern cultivars. And it was all on a seed contract for someone. So, you know, it's this big deal. I was like, oh God, if it rains now, we're gonna be in trouble. And then when I stood, stood back from that, I was like, well, why has it gone flat? Because I farmed it the same way. And I think I spoke to this guy called Mike Harrington, in, who's an agronomist, deals with a lot of organic farms in Oxfordshire. And he said, it's not about how much of anything or even a snapshot. It's about things happening in time, you know, basically, fertility is live like it's it's all about cycling so then when he, when he said that i was like oh cool so actually so i haven't improved my organic matter who cares like clearly something is happening underneath my feet the soil is like waking up to it so i went down that rabbit hole really really deep i think we're all guilty of overcomplicating it so i wanted to boil it down to like one thing and then i could measure all my decisions against that one thing and that one thing for me was biology do everything you can to improve the soil biology and appreciate that the soil is live, you know, like stuff happens in it. And that everything springs out from that. That's where I got to. And I started, I've been on that journey for the last seven years of my 10 year journey, which is just making incremental decisions that enhance my soil biology. On the journey towards focusing on biology, there's like a to-do list and that's easy. Like we all know when you like something, you can do more stuff, you can work harder, you can try. They're all rabbit holes, but cover cropping, multi-species cover cropping. Gabe Brown talks about this theory like a chaos garden. I've copied his idea, but tried to integrate them into my system as profitable parts of the system, which ultimately led to me generating a mixed farm with pigs. And the pig system entirely reflects what I was trying to achieve on my arable setup. So it's kind of a weird, maybe even innovative, you want to say, the way we farm the pigs, but every single aspect of it reflects certain goals that I was trying to achieve for my soil biology. Does that make sense? As part of that journey, you can't physically just step off a cliff and say, now look, I'm regenerative. It's a journey, right? It's a process. And I'd also come from this point of view of I was throwing 250 plus kilos a hectare of nitrogen at my milling weeds. And sometimes one season I did five fungicides. I did a T01, 1.52. We get a lot of septoria in the Southwest. So modern wheats are terrible against septoria. One of the other things, apart from giving me my moment of inspiration, Mike Harrington at Edifos, like has a few tools that mean you can climb down slower. So for example, we started using more complex forms of nitrogen or simple if you're a plant. So foliar applied, 
the point was every year for the last seven years I've reduced my nitrogen input by 25% on the previous year or to, to my cereals and my oilseed rape and if you do it like that whilst understanding that you're still on a cliff edge and you're trying to climb down slowly you need things like what, what Mike's got so I, yeah so it's, it's still a technical journey and there's still inputs required I think but you know where you're headed and, and, and nitrogen is the easiest one when you when you start winding back your nitrogen everything else follows because for example let me just give you like a like a feedback cycle that I'm sure other people have talked about but if you're looking at a functioning ecosystem which is what I'm trying to create everything's about biology so what does a non-functioning ecosystem look like soil ecosystem well it's driven by high nitrogen for example which means you have high weed pressure high weed burden which means you have to spray herbicides herbicides chelate some really key metals in the soil like zinc and copper key for plant immune systems so you have a weaker plant that's prone to fungal infection so then you spray four fungicides a year and the fungicides degrade your soil biology more. Therefore, you have lower natural inherent background fertility. Therefore, you have to... So it goes off in different directions, but there's these little loops that you're totally locked into. And I think few people talk about being locked in. I definitely felt like that. That first three years of the high input, high output, not just financially locked in to a commodity chain, but like, you know, biologically you're locked in because your soils have no capability to do what soils should do. I think I reached like a brick wall. I was on this regenerative journey. I was making good decisions. I think, obviously, it wasn't my idea to find these heritage varieties. I happened to be talking with a baker called Ben Glazer, who works from Cornwall, and he bought a lot of his flour from Gilchester's. I was really intrigued by the work that they were doing, so I went up. The penny dropped. I had a sort of another, like, eureka moment. Andrew at Gilchester's and his wife, Belial, they have made the same sort of connection. Well, they'd made it before me, and I realized that's that was the missing link in my system modern varieties weren't suitable for their organic system so i saw this idea of looking at different plant breeding techniques and more diverse population mixes as a a tool to unlock another level of regeneration that i could could employ because all of the inputs that i still use and i still use artificial inputs albeit less i can reduce them further by building in more resilient varieties into my cropping system i think I think for me, if there's one thing about the regenerative thing versus being conventional or organic, and that's why I'm beginning to identify with being a regenerative farmer, is that A, it's really um, like reassuring to know that there is a way to somewhere. You can build soil, like it's possible, but also that it's like a process. So it's a lot more of a communal language and you're accessible to talk to lots of people and take lots of advice. If someone I was talking to and I was trying to help them sharing advice from my journey changing my nitrogen uh, inputs it's a really straightforward one that works and gives results provided you're also like feeding the biology like with your rotation with cover cropping with for example herbal lays turning an arable farm to a mixed farm like you, you can't just take one element as like a silver bullet but that's definitely a key driver of a lot of our other inputs is the fact that we're plastering through another one might be monocultures well, I was used to seeing tabletop wheat that yielded really tremendously now i'm very aware of the shortcomings literally the shortcomings of that wheat i have an interest in diversity and heritage varieties are for me the only accessible as, as i'm not technically proficient in plant breeding or anything like that so the only way i have of accessing diversity from modern monocultures is 
to delve to gene banks, put seed in the ground and try and find like low input varieties that would hopefully suit my more like low input regenerative farming system. Because once you have a variety that's capable of not having nitrogen or as much nitrogen, is capable of more complex mycorrhizal associations, has inbuilt resilience to, for example, in my case, septoria, a modern wheat which is short, all the leaves are close together, septoria spread by rain splash, so close leaves, lots more septoria spread at the plant. Hence why we spray four or five times with fungicides. If you have a tall plant, physical barrier. I mean, it's like bog standard. But there are other things I think that are more like cryptic and they, they work in our favour. I don't really understand them, but basically diversity is the root of all of those good things. I think it would be a, a brilliant thing if more farmers could come on the same sort of journey that I've been on. That's taken me 10 years, but already we could fast track that to like two or three years. Because, you know, it's about learning and making mistakes and eureka moments, but well, I've had those so I can just tell them <laughs> you know it's easier isn't it step one is understand that the whole driver of your farming system is the soil biology farmerama is made by abby rose joe barrett and me katie revel this month we also had help from louis hudson and susie mccarthy Thank you to the Oxford Real Farming Conference for kindly allowing us to use their recording of Barbara Hachipuka Banda speaking at the event. Community support is by Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins and Olivia Oldham. And our theme music is by Owen Barrett. And don't forget to keep an ear out for our short coming out later in the month, which features brilliant perennial polyculture farmer Kathy Dice with some tips from her Pick Your Own Farm in Iowa. Thanks for listening. Hello.